0: Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard um, of the high priest. He entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were there, looking for false evidence against Jesus. So they took, so they took what they could to put him to death. But they did not find anything. Many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy, Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spat in his face and struck him by their fists over and over. Others slapped him saying, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you?
1: What do you think, the high priest asks those at Jesus' trial. What do you think about Jesus? Your answer to this question is probably the most important answer you could ever give. Who you think Jesus is will change your life. It will change what you think about the world. It will change what you think about yourself. It will change what you think about God. I grew up thinking that Jesus was a fraud. I'd heard stories about him that he could walk on water and turn water into wine. He sounded like a great guy to have at a party, but (laughs) of very little relevance to my life. I thought the stories that we found in the gospels were fairy tales for the spiritually curious. It wasn't until I started going to church as a teenager that I really began to ask questions Are these stories true? When my dad heard that I'd started going to church, he was quite concerned. He called me into his office. I say office, it was more of a man cave. Um, He had various musical instruments and things, and he called me in and he said, Rachel, I hear you're going to church. I'm actually quite concerned about this. See, my dad was very skeptical of religion. He said, you can keep going as long as you make sure you ask questions. Ask questions about everything the church says and ask questions about everything you read in the Bible. And so I took his advice. The only problem was it ended up in a way not quite as he expected. See, the more I investigated the Gospels, the more I looked closely, the more I realized they are historically reliable. They don't speak about fairy tales that took place in the imaginations of fanatics. They speak about a real moment in history. They speak about a time and a place. They speak about a real historical person called Jesus of Nazareth. And they talk about a cross, a real cross at Golgotha. See, as I looked more and more at the person of Jesus, I was more and more drawn in, I was more curious. He was surprising. What I found, I hadn't expected. See, in Jesus, I didn't find a heavy religion. I found a loving God. What do you think about Jesus? See, I began to ask, if these events happened, the arrest, the trial, and crucifixion of Jesus, if this really happened, what does that mean? What does that mean for my life? What does that mean for your life? What does it tell us about God? We've heard how Jesus is arrested and he's on trial by the religious authorities. But maybe you're wondering how it got to this point. Things seem to have escalated. From what we read in the Gospels, Jesus didn't come with violence. He didn't commit a criminal offense. He didn't raise up an army. He came in love. He healed the sick. He spent time with the marginalized. He restored the rejected. He came for the least the last and the lost, and yet here he is on trial. Jesus is the love of God personified, and that love threatened the status quo. Everything about Jesus challenged the powers that be and made them nervous, so they arrest him and they accuse him, ironically, of blasphemy. This isn't the God we know. There's no way that this God that Jesus preaches and claims to be is the God that that we realize and recognize. At the time of Jesus' coming, there was an expectation. There was a waiting. In the air, there was this hope for a Messiah, a savior, an anointed one who would come and who would redeem and rescue Israel from their enemies. Are you the Messiah, they asked Jesus. Are you really the one we're waiting for? Are you really the one we're hoping for to come and rescue us? Surely not. See, they wanted political liberation. They were being oppressed by the Roman Empire and they wanted someone to come up and take action and to save them, to change their current circumstances. There's no way Jesus was this Messiah what they didn't realize was what Jesus came to do was far more significant than just their current circumstances. It was far bigger than just them. It was far more important than political liberation. It ran far deeper than that. Jesus had come to change history in an unimaginable way. They couldn't see it. Jesus wasn't the Messiah they were expecting and he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. I don't know if you've ever received a gift that perhaps was unexpected or that maybe you didn't want. Just this Christmas, um, Andy, my husband, um, his family decided to do a secret Santa, which I don't know if you've ever done this before, but basically you all put in your name and you randomly select someone you're gonna buy a gift for and you set a budget and it's kind of anonymous. But this year, my father-in-law picked my name out So I was quite excited. I wondered whether he would have the same great ability to buy gifts that my husband has. Just last week, it was our wedding anniversary, and my husband bought me a book. The book was titled, How Not to Kill Household Plants. (laughs) Nothing says I love you like a gift like that. I had wondered if he was trying to tell me something, if it was a metaphor about our marriage. But anyway, it turns out that Andy's dad is even better at giving gifts than he is. So on Christmas Day, I open this present, and there in my hands is a year's supply of paracetamol. (laughs) Now, some of you are sat there going, that's a very practical thing to buy, paracetamol. I said, it only cost 10p a pack, and I, he spent the whole budget on paracetamol. <laughs> and I said, you know, Warwick, I'm sure you, when you go to the supermarket or wherever, you're only allowed to buy two boxes at once. He went, oh, yeah, I had to make multiple trips. <laughs> He'd been working on this gift for a very long time. <laughs> this gift wasn't the gift I expected. And if I'm honest, it wasn't really the gift I wanted. But just a few days later, me and my husband went home, and um, we both got really ill. And our daughter was about one month old at the time, and we were housebound. And you guessed it, we ran out of paracetamol. (laughs) But then we had an epiphany. Still in our suitcase, still wrapped, was this lifetime supply of paracetamol. See, it hadn't been the gift I'd expected. It was the gift I needed. Jesus wasn't the Messiah they expected but he's the saviour they needed and he's the saviour we need. What Jesus came to do was irrevocably change the way in which we understand and relate to God. See, religion had always been about what we could offer to God what sacrifices we could bring, what gifts we could bring in order to show our faithfulness, our love. But on the cross, this is turned on its head. In Jesus, God himself becomes the sacrifice. He offers himself to show his love and his faithfulness to us. Just the day before his trial, Jesus had been celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, the Last Supper, And it's at this Passover meal that we find the theological context for Jesus' death. See, the Passover was a time when the Israelites celebrated and remembered the time when God had rescued and redeemed them. They had been slaves in Egypt, but God miraculously rescued them. There had been many plagues and it all culminates on a night when God tells them to sacrifice a lamb, to take the blood of a lamb and to put it on their doorposts because when death comes over Egypt, the blood of the lamb will save them. This happens and the Egyptians say to the Israelites, get out, leave. And so Moses leads them into freedom across the Red Sea to the Promised Land. This is the story of the Exodus that we find in Exodus 12. And this narrative, this story of God rescuing and redeeming his people was at the heart of what it meant to be God's people. It was at the center of their identity. It is at the Last Supper where they are remembering the Exodus, God's redemption, God's rescuing. That when they celebrate the Exodus, we find it now pointing to a new Exodus. This meal that was about what God had done is now about what God will do in Jesus. Jesus himself will be the sacrificial lamb. Jesus himself will be the one to lead all of humanity into freedom, true freedom. And it's at this meal that we find Jesus explaining why he is to give his life. He says this, that it is for many and for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus is going to give his life for you, for me, for the forgiveness of sin, for the forgiveness of all that would separate us from God for the givenness of all that we might do wrong, that we might be reconciled to him. I don't know about you, but of all the things I could think to ask of God, I would not have ever have asked for the cross. Yet it's the thing we most need. Jesus goes to the cross to reveal the heart of God so that we might know God and experience his love in a way that was never previously before possible. There is nothing greater on this earth that you can experience than knowing the love of God, that he loves you deeply, truly, just as you are. This is what Jesus makes possible. This is what the cross is about. It is the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. But the religious authorities, the Roman authorities, the crowds, they reject Jesus. They reject this Messiah. They don't want this Messiah. They don't understand what he is doing. So they go to kill the one who came to love them. Jesus is about to go through the most dehumanizing experience you could within the first century Mediterranean world. To be crucified was the most dishonoring experience position you could have. It was the most disgraced and degrading existence. There was no lower moment. There was no more torturous experience than to be crucified naked on a cross. But this is the extent that love is prepared to go for you and for me. The Apostle Paul, whose life was radically changed by the love of God, that he found in Jesus reflects on the cross and he reflects on the sacrifice that Jesus made and he comes to this conclusion. He says that surely neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor anything present now or in the future no power no height nor depth could ever separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Nothing can stop this love and this is what we're about to see the religious authorities can't stop it the Roman authorities can't stop it the crowds can't stop it you can't stop it I can't stop it even the cross in all its horror cannot stop the love of God Jesus knows what he has come to do he knows the Messiah he is his eyes are set on the cross He's determined to see your forgiveness, to see your love come to be. It is the free gift of God to us, but it doesn't come cheap. It will cost Jesus everything.
0: Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into Praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spat on him, and they took the staff and they struck him on his head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off his robe and put his own clothes on him again, and they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene. His name was Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink. They mixed it with gal, but after tasting it, he refused. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there.
1: Jesus is falsely accused. He's beaten. He's mocked. They strike him on the head again and again, and then they crucify him. This is what we do to love. They offer him wine to drink, but he refuses to drink it. See, when he'd been celebrating the Passover meal, he said to them, I will not drink of this cup again until what I have set out to do has been completed. Even in this moment on the cross, Jesus is resolute. He will not be deterred, he will not be stopped. Jesus has remained silent through much of what is going on. And this again fulfills what is said about the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, it says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth the next time Jesus will speak will be when he cries from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in this cry we hear the suffering of Jesus. This is the depth to which his love for us will take him. If we put ourselves at the scene, the cruelty seems barbaric, it seems unnecessary. It's in the degrading of Jesus, it's in the mocking, the abuse, and the killing at the cross that we see the horrors humanity are capable of. We're reminded of what we're capable of doing to God's gift and to each other. Jesus experiences the worst of being human. But in doing so, we see at the cross Jesus' divine solidarity with those who suffer. Jesus was not the first person to be the victim of violence, to be an innocent person abused, and neither will he be the last. (coughs) Our history is marked by the horrors that we have committed to one another, whether it be for reasons of race, of gender, of religion, of political persuasion, or of social status. And it's in this moment when we remember the cross, we must remember that Jesus stands with those who have suffered, as one who also suffers. This cry Jesus makes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is a cry that he has learnt from Psalm 22, which continues, why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. But I wonder, is this not also the cry we hear in our world? Is this not also sometimes the cry of our own hearts? God, where are you? Why are you not answering us? Why are you not answering our prayers? Why are you not acting? God, where are you? I remember, as a teenager, waking up one morning to hearing my dad um, crying out my mum's name. At the time, my mum had been battling with cancer and her health had deteriorated rapidly. And so I lay frozen still, wondering if everything was okay. And then my dad began to cry my name, and so I ran to their room, and my dad was resuscitating my mum, and he, he told me to call the ambulance called the ambulance, and they said, go head out into your village so that we can find your house. So I went out, and it was before anyone had woken up, the village was completely still silent. And I was just stood there, and all I knew to do was to say the name of Jesus. I'd only been a Christian a couple of months, didn't know much about the Bible, hadn't been to church very often, but there was something in my gut that knew to just pray the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It was the week after that my mum then passed away and everything about those circumstances said, God, where are you? Everything about what happened made me ask God, why have you not answered our prayers? Why have you let this happen? Why have you forsaken me? But paradoxically, it was in that moment that God did answer one prayer, the prayer for Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus continued to be present with me. It was in this time when it felt like God was most hidden in my circumstances that actually he revealed himself most deeply to me. It was through all those events in the weeks and even the years after, through those experiences that I discovered more about the love of God. It was through his spirit that I experienced his presence and his love. I realized that Jesus wasn't a fairy tale. This wasn't some myth, but he was who he said he was. I still had and do have so many questions. But in the cross, I found that Jesus was with me in my suffering. In the cross, I looked to someone who understood, who knew who was with me. In the cross, we find someone who understands our pain, who understands our suffering, who understands our rejection. See, on the cross, Jesus enters the depths of human despair. He enters the depths of human pain and of suffering so that even in those places, we might know he is with us. In our suffering, God doesn't necessarily always offer an explanation, but he does always offer himself. This is what we see on the cross. Jesus himself is the gift. He is the answer to our cry. He says, here I am. And in his time, our suffering will be overcome by his suffering our wounds will be healed by his wounds. So often I think, and I hear from people I speak to, one of the biggest things that prevents us from feeling like we can believe in God or acknowledge that he's real is this question of suffering and of evil. But I think that perhaps the issue that epitomizes this the most is that of death. Surely it is death that challenges the idea of a loving God. Surely it's death that challenges the idea of an eternal and faithful God. Death is the greatest enemy humanity faces. It's the thing that has the final word over everyone and everything. It is death that challenges the idea of a loving, faithful, and eternal God. But this is the very thing Jesus came to defeat. See, the cross isn't a story about a victim, but a victory. Actually, the cross is the day where God isn't defeated as much as it might seem like that in the moment, but it's the day where death itself dies. Out of the horror of the cross, we find God orchestrating a hope for humanity. It's in the cross that we find God is once again rescuing and redeeming his people. It's at the cross we find there is a new exodus. But Jesus isn't just saving us from enslavement to Egyptians or anyone else. He's saving us and rescuing us from our enslavement to sin. He isn't just defeating our enemies of Rome or any other empire, but he's defeating our one true enemy, death. The sin that destroys life, that prevents our relationship with God, that leads to death. This is what Christ had come to liberate us from. This is why he was the Messiah nobody expected. And if this is true, if this really did happen, then this changes everything for us. It changes how we are to relate with God because our relationship is no longer to be based on our sin and our mistakes, but on his love and on his life. See, on the cross, Jesus is creating a future for us that was otherwise impossible. He enables a tomorrow beyond the pain and suffering and mistakes of today. Because of Jesus, we know that death does not need to have the final word in our lives. Grief does not need to have the final word. Depression does not need to have the final word. Cancer does not need to have the final word. Debt, divorce, redundancy, rejection, shame, sin does not need to have the final word in our lives. For on Sunday, we will hear that Jesus has the final word, and it is a word of life and love and forgiveness for you.